Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. That's pride fucking with you. Fuck pride. Pride only hurts. The great and has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think he's lost, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we've done 115 episodes of this podcast, and we have yet to do a segment on conceptual penises. How is that possible? <laughs> I think we haven't done a whole episode just on penises. I mean, we got to start like with the basics, the universals. Just pen- yeah, at both actual and conceptual penises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could go. We can do phenomenal and noumenal penises. Yeah, we we could do like platonic penises. The platonic you know? penis. Like what's, I wonder if anybody's done any studies on. You know how they do these find these uh, studies on perception of beauty, and they're like, oh, it turns out if you morph like a bunch of faces together, it's like the most attractive face, or whatever. I wonder if anybody's morphed a bunch of like penis pictures from like uh, you know like Craigslist or something to see if that a- actually turns out to be the most attractive penis. It's really so, something yeah. that you don't know. Like I suspect that I have an attractive penis, but it's <laughs> n- it's not something that you get a lot of feedback on. You know, people don't give like well, maybe the size honest of it, feedback, yeah. but like yeah. not the just the jet like how attractive. <laughs> Nobody gets honest feedback about their penis. I think that's a general rule. <laughs> yeah. You know? And the question is, why would anybody want it? We need, like, peer-reviewed penises. Well, turns out you can get anything through that. Yeah. So, you know, my penis could get published in a top journal, apparently. <laughs> no, I think uh, they need to at least be circumcised. <laughs> Reviewer number three hated it. <laughs> yeah, I got to revise and resubmit. Conditional acceptance if you do a little trimming. <laughs> uh, we got a comment at some point that on iTunes that we, we made too many dick jokes, and I think that I agree. I think. <laughs> if we haven't before, we certainly have now. <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's apt. I mean, it's relevant to our opening discussion. Yes. So uh, We didn't choose. We didn't, go, we didn't seek out. We didn't create this. No. We some like seek penis jokes, some are born into penis jokes, and some have penis jokes <laughs> thrust upon them. And that's <laughs> we're in the third category there. Uh, <laughs> I think I messed up. Um, that I'm before, sur- actually, but, yeah, well, yeah. you know you're quoting you're quoting scripture there. I um, didn't know that actually, really. Yeah. From what yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's uh it's Jesus 
talking about um oh no it might be paul so excuse me talking about celibacy um Oh no, maybe it is Jesus. Yeah, based uh, talking about there's no uh, written, being a eunuch. There's no talking about being a eunuch. Jesus didn't write anything, did he? No, no, but it's, it's a report. You don't, you don't, you. It's quote. Yeah, it's his credit. You know the red words on in the New Testament. Those are all Jesus talking. Um, I think he's talking about being a eunuch um, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, getting your balls cut off so that you don't get tempted. You know what's uh, not commented on enough is the similarities between Jesus and Socrates. Ah. There, there's so many parallels to both of their stories. Um, I think I, uh, I think you got an Eon article. I think you got an Eon article here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, including that nobody's, they didn't write anything, but there's extensive stuff right. written about them and what they thought and what they said. Right. And, you know, hemlocks and crosses. Mm-hmm. Hem, hemlock um yeah that's true it's, here's jesus was sampling the life of socrates <laughs> give proper credit <laughs> so let's talk about this this is the latest academic controversy small stakes controversy is this alleged hoax on gender studies that was well. It, I mean, it, why? Why do you say alleged? I mean, it was intended to be a hoax, and it was uh, right. So it was definitely a hoax that was conducted by the philosopher Peter Bogosian and the mathematician James Lindsay. And what they did was a very it was a Sokol style hoax. This is how they describe it. They wrote a paper called "The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct," which is a parody of, I guess, gender studies some gender studies articles. They submitted it. I'll I'll get to exactly the submission process, but they ended up getting it accepted at a peer-reviewed journal and then went on to describe what happened in a kind of gleeful essay for the skeptic website. And you can kind of feel when you read it, they're kind of angry, kind of gloating glee at this kind of daring expose. Um, and Michael Shermer, who is sort of the godfather of the modern skeptic movement, uh, leads off. So he actually has like a preface of the, of the article. He says, every once in a while, it is necessary and desirable to expose extreme ideologies for what they are by carrying out arguments and rhetoric to their logical and absurd conclusion, which is why we are proud to publish this expose of a hoaxed article published in a peer-reviewed journal today. Its ramifications are unknown, but one hopes it will help rein in extremism in this and related areas. Michael Shermer. Um, I think th- th- he doesn't realize the use of the word exposed there is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so then the authors, they, they quote some of their paper. And actually, the parody is kind of funny of just some of the sentences. But here's what they conclude. They conclude that their hoax was similar to Sokal's hoax, um, but it aimed to expose a more troubling bias. The most potent among the human susceptibilities to corruption by fashionable, fashionable nonsense is the temptation to uncritically endorse morally fashionable nonsense. We suspected that gender studies is crippled academically by an overriding almost religious belief that maleness is the root of all evil. On the evidence, our suspicion 
was justified. The echo chamber of morally driven, fashionable nonsense coming out of the postmodernist social sciences in general and gender studies departments in particular, as we see it, gender studies in its current form needs to do some serious house cleaning. Okay, so that was the, the hoax, the conclusion, their conclusions for it. It was a real, allegedly, takedown of gender studies as a field. Now, when something like that happens, there is a certain segment of the skeptic, rationalist community that get boners, right? Actual boners, not even conceptual <laughs> boners. Actual boners. And so when this comes out, everyone you'd expect to tweet about it did tweet about it. Sam Harris, Dawkins, Steven Pinker, Michael Shermer, and all their minions. Really yeah. quickly, uh, maybe people might not be familiar with what the original so-called hoax was. Um, it was 20 years ago, and it was it was a fake article published in Social Text. Um, and we'll link to at least one article that sort of um, describes that along with some quotes from so Sokol's original sort of commentary on his hoax. Which, was um, a which were a lot more modest right, um, right. in what he thought he had accomplished then than these. But then, like, I don't know, a few hours later, there were already some sober-minded essays that broke down very clearly and kind of decisively why this hoax didn't do anything to expose gender studies or any kind of bias towards morally fashionable nonsense. So here's what it turns out happened. They did send it to a gender studies journal, but it was a gender studies journal that weren't ranked they i guess they rank their journals and there's 115 rankings and it was not in that group of 115 gender studies journals and that journal rejected it without even sending it to peer review they just desk rejected it but in the rejection they got what is either an auto reply or a very standard kind of uh, note referring them to this pay-per-publish open-access journal called Cogent Studies, I think. Um, yeah. Now, this is not a gender studies journal at all. Like, it doesn't list gender studies as any as one of the things that is in their journal. What it might be is a predatory, you know, like, piece of shit, like, you pay us and we'll publish anything. Um so it might be that kind of journal. I don't know what it is. But that's where it was accepted for publication. So while it might have exposed this particular journal, although, you know, there's a lot of journals like this that will publish anything and say that it's peer-reviewed if you pay them, this hoax didn't expose anything about gender studies. I mean, so the, the minute I read their piece in Skeptic, and they told the story of, because this is exactly the sort of thing that people um, alerted us to right away, um, and you, I think you texted me. Yeah. As soon as, as soon oh, as I was like, oh, this is going to be a, like, perfect for the podcast. Right. Um, so I read it, and my, my first thought when reading their their summary is they're, they're open about the the um submission process so they submitted to that first journal norma and got re rejected so right they don't try I, to hide that they don't they don't try to hide it but it, it would have been 
great. If they had gotten reviews from Norma um, and published some of them, but what? So when I read it, I was like, "This says something that even like a kind of shitty journal in the field refused to publish it. Why is that not evidence that there is more rigor than once than than anticipated? Right? Um, if they had it's a low bar. Down, I mean, it's a parody paper, but still, yeah. S- still, I mean, it's a parody paper that got rejected by a mediocre journal in the field. That is an n equals one anecdote that is more powerful than getting something published in a pay-to-publish journal, right? It, like, the news story, as you point out here, is is two things. One, not surprising at all. It's like, you know, dog bites man. Uh, people publish shitty stuff in pay-to-publish journals. Like, that's it, right? Um, the news story that it caused was people knee-jerk, uh, like, celebrate... <laughs> when their enemies seem to be put in their place, right? But but That's- this is the... the I, so here's what I think is depressing about it. It wasn't just people. It was the so-called skeptics who praise critical thinking and rationalism. Yeah. No, yeah. And they still haven't backed down or admitted. Like, you would think, okay, you know, I when I first saw it, when I first saw just a little tweet about it I thought oh this is gonna be good and then when you right. read it and then certainly after you read even one of the critical articles about it then you're like oh okay so that hoax f- didn't do what the authors said it did but but those but but the authors don't back down the skeptics don't back down they just double down they dig their heels into it they start retweeting like ridiculous gender studies ab- abstracts as if that says any says anything about the success or failure of th- this particular hoax right or they start you know responding to tweets by people who are attacking them for bad reasons like right. who cares like, so the the very point that this that the authors of the hoax paper are trying to make that these are this is a field of people who are so morally motivated that they'll accept even the most ludicrous claims um make a weak argument that ends up getting accepted by those who morally agree with with their position right so and, and the irony is fucking palpable and, and this is over and over again it's just so so clear and should be so obvious that this kind of motivated reasoning and sort of morally motivated bias in the way people process information is is not owned by conservatives or liberals and it doesn't this is all i i don't know if it's if if it's getting worse um or if it's just that people want to give their hot takes on twitter um and without actually reading or thinking about anything but it's it's getting to the point of just shame on everybody, and at then at the risk of somebody accused you of your your deriding of smugness is starting to sound smug. So at the at the risk of of being smug in my in my criticism of these authors, the way in which they wrote this uh, wrote up their skeptic piece is so self congratulatory. I know that it's sickening. It's yeah, it, it's it like it's infuriating. It's it really is just so the the smugness is is um, doing nothing but taking away from from the point right. If there was any need for critical thinkers to to shit on a field that's not very critical in its thinking, 
I doubt that this was what what was necessary. I mean, like the Twitter account Real Peer Review does it all the time. You don't even, you don't need a fake paper. But then there's stuff there, there's stuff that I found especially uh, annoying uh, where they were quoting from their own uh, uh, paper, their own hoax paper, and just saying like, and we know for a fact that this means nothing. You like you tell us like obviously this means nothing. There's no meaning in it. And some of the stuff is actually like specifically written to communicate a certain meaning that they know is right that they if know they're cla- might they're, get they know what it means yeah what? yeah when they say when they when they say like we even attributed climate change to the conceptual penis how ridiculous is that well like look i, I think it's stupid that people use the penis as a metaphor for like raping nature but it's not it's not meaningless <laughs> it is a metaphor. My penis has not contributed to climate change. I can say that much about my penis. Because it's not hot at all. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. There, it, it seems to me as if, as if uh, you, you could take any article uh, probably published in s- similar journals or of similar styles and just point out meaningless paragraphs. You don't you need to go out of your way to write it. It's a little too eager. Is all it, it really, so just, I mean, what it exposed was the, the, the motivated reasoning, as you said, of this community. It's, it's a segment of skeptics. Like I think, you know, the best criticisms came from people who are skeptics and probably skeptical of gender studies, too. At least a couple of them just said, look, I don't doubt that gender studies publishes a lot of ridiculous um, things. But this but the point is this hoax doesn't in any no, way exactly. reveal if anything. It re- as you pointed out, it reveals the opposite. And what what this does expose is that for a certain segment, and I think it's larger. So, you know, it was represented by Dawkins and Shermer and Pinker and I guess Sam Harris. But there's this angry mob of like this is the thing that I found troubling and kind of depressing about it is just these angry people that were just pouncing on this with right. like this kind of, I don't know, over the top schadenfreude. Uh, yeah. Again, it's something that turned out not to be what they thought and then just not refusing it to back down. It's just like there's like a sickness. There's like an anger to some of these people. And I again, this is like you said, on both sides that makes me worried, you know, like why is everyone yeah. so freaking angry? Like, let's say gender studies was a total joke. Why, why would you spend yeah. like so many hours uh, trying to do this convoluted plot to like like w- yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, it, so so okay so a couple things one of the things that really bothered me was um, in in the uh, little intro that Michael Shermer uh, gives the preface when he when he says it's ramifications referring to the article or the hoax. <laughs> are unknown, but one hopes it will rein in extremism in this and related areas. Now, real, d- does anybody really think <laughs> that this is what's going to rein in the you know, supposed lack of clear thinking in gender studies? Does, is it, like, I want to ask Shermer himself, because I respect the guy, like, as I respect people on the left who also are crazy sometimes, but I want to ask, do you really think that m- m- mocking 
a, a field by doing this is what's going to convince somebody who has, say, spent their life, you know, doing yeah. this kind of work to, to say, you know, wow, I until these shitty people published in a in a pay to publish journal, I didn't realize that my whole career is meaningless. Now, and this is what I was just in a committee meeting yesterday with um, members of the university, sort of across, across Cornell University, and I and we have a new president, so so we were talking about basically about how can we preempt some of the ways in which shit has gone wrong at other universities, right? Right. What if somebody invites Charles Murray to, to Cornell? Like, what are we, what, what can we do to ensure that, that is no rocking of the cars? And, and I think again, it's a pedagogical question when, when it comes to students, like it's our job to teach people how to disagree. But what I don't get, is how people seem to miss, entirely miss, that respectfully disagreeing is always is always more always effective. more effective. I mean, yeah. it's not even that it's more effective. It, it is some effective, right? As, as opposed to not at all. It, it is for people who love uh, chastising, uh, excoriating undergraduates for turning their backs and walking out and yelling. Um, how is this not just the Twitter equivalent of that kind of behavior? I, I, I don't know. It's if you really want to change someone's mind, get to know them, talk to them, reach out, you know, find common ground. But respectfully they don't want to. They don't. That's the thing. They're not. They're not trying to convince these people to change their mind yeah. about their chosen field, right? They're not, I don't think Shermer even thinks that that's what this hoax will do. I think he thinks this will convince anybody who might have been agnostic. Um, to also be, to also be angry. To also be angry and pissed yeah. off, right. And and what it's done is, the, I mean, the like you said, the palpable irony is just put a mirror to the skeptic movement. Oh, you're critical thinking skills aren't quite all you've touted them to be. And that's what you, like, at least the gender studies people don't say we're, like, we're the critical, we're the only critical thinkers, you know? Like, that's not their claim about what it is that they're doing. So, (laughs) exactly. uh, so, I I don't know. Like, that, but but it's, it's depressing. (laughs) I mean, our whole, like, the whole point, like, I think of even doing a podcast like this is to refine our critical thinking and, you know, our, our sharpen, sharpen our thinking. I'm not surprised, I guess I'm not surprised, like, I just, it's, it's, um, but I do, I do want to talk a little bit about the one other reason this is not a, the reductio that they thought it was, which is that, um, has nothing to do with gender studies. It is that, that there really are these predatory pay to publish journals that pop up in every single field. And you sent me a cup. So you sent me some good write-ups. One of them was by, uh, Keaton Joshi, um, uh, basically pointing out the look, like there's no, there's no lack of shitty papers, um, being like slipping through. It's hard enough. Like I think science or just in general academia is suffering from, a real burden of putting out more and more academics, more and more PhDs that have to publish. So there's a market for journals. 
and everybody's looking to publish more and more and more, sort of an arms race for publishing. And these predatory, whatever, pay-to-publish journals have lax standards that you don't even need to get to the pay-to-publish journals to find crappy stuff that is not, you know, the, the workforce that is required to review all these things. Uh, you know, many of our listeners, and at least I know in psychology, are actually editors at some of the journals in psychology, and they can tell you how hard it is to even get two people to review um, to, to review something. So it's no surprise that some shitty stuff got pushed. In. Like, but it's, you can, you could take down psychology, you know, if you, if you are really going to accept this as a reductio, then you can take down almost every field that exists. Wait, no, no, no. Right. But, but you're assuming that this is a gender studies journal. Like even that objection <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. assumes that it's a gender studies journal. It would be yeah. like somebody publishing in like in a paper published biology journal and saying that they've taken down chemistry uh, right. by doing that. Like, no, you've taken... <laughs> right. And so there, like it really says nothing. And, you know, like honestly... You could, if you want to find the worst non-hoax, <laughs> like I bet you there are a bunch of non-hoax psychology articles that would be even greater takedowns of the field, like that were actually reviewed by people. Right. So, There's a lot of self-parody so, articles, um, yeah, that aren't and, and, trying it, to be parodies. Here's what. So let's conclude with what SoCal said about his own actually successful published in a somewhat reputable, though not, right. you know, leading uh, journal. Um, so here's what he, he like, compare this, this conclusion to what they say. From the mere fact of publication of my parody, I think that not much can be deduced. It doesn't prove that the whole field of cultural studies or cultural studies of sciences, much less sociology of science, is nonsense. Nor does it prove that the intellectual standards in these fields are generally lax. This might be the case, but, but it would have to be established on other grounds. It proves only that the editors of one rather marginal journal were derelict in their intellectual duty. It's so measured in drawing yeah. that, that it's like that makes me think we were living in a different world then. Look, you know. Well, we, I think we were. I mean, it yeah. was just not possible to react so easily. Right. It was you, you like if you wanted to r reply, if you, you know, if you wanted to rip 20 years ago, if you wanted to offer your take on what was going on, you could blog probably. But who had, you know, how many people had access to 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 their own blog? You know, you had a, no HTML or whatever <laughs> like, um, or publish an op ed, you know, or, a, or retort in that same journal or something like that. You know, social um, media. And it's the root of all evils. It, it's the root of a lot of them, or at least the fucking black mirror. There's, there's plenty of other ways to criticize a bad field, but... Um, How about just but do work in, in a field that you find worthy and valuable? I think I think that alone is probably the best advice. Even, even people in our own field who, who are very, very, in, say, in, in psychology, I think that if you're going to be hypercritical of of the work of other people it would help you for your message and for your fucking character to be honest to be doing good work that yeah. is show the world that you can do it right you don't or else all you're showing is that you can collect a bunch of critical tools right like build something just you know I, and i don't know what these guys do in their real life but but, but. work on restore well <laughs> 
just as social media is the problem, restorative justice is the solution that pretty much goes for any. Well, you can apologize on Twitter, right? You can so yeah, immediate you can access hug. to apologies. Like a, is there a hug Twitter hug? You just send an emoji. <laughs> That's your thing. You love just, emojis. Well, just you know, get consent to send the hug emoji first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. We have not even talked about what our topic is today. No, will no. you tell yeah. our listeners what our topic is? Um, our topic is going to be um, really based around a paper on the measurement of of pain and pleasure, but really about any subjective experience and the problems that are, I think, inherent in in methodology and psychology and why that's important. That's a horrible summary, but we'll get to it. It's a paper on the measurement of my penis. <laughs> it's like, how can you accurately measure something that massive? It's uh, it's it's Schrodinger's penis. It really has no length until someone looks at it. So it pretty much has no length. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. In a sec, we're going to talk about problems with measuring subjective well-being and happiness. Uh, before that, we'd like to take a moment to thank all the people who support us and who get in touch with us. You can get in touch with us by emailing us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes. We've gotten some really nice iTunes reviews um lately that put us in great moods so please rate us and maybe even write a review that's very helpful i guess for the podcast tweet us at tamler at peas at very bad wizards you can follow on instagram if you want to support us in more tangible ways you can go to patreon.com slash very bad wizards and become a supporter we've had a lot of uh a lot of new patrons lately, and that is really encouraging. We're really happy and grateful for all of that. You can also go to our support page and give us a one-time donation on PayPal, 
or um, click on the Amazon link at our support page and go about your norm normal purchases and that will help support us as well. I don't know how much longer that's going to last, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, if you have any we'll big purchases, now's the time to remember to go to that page. Right. Um, Sam, Sam and, and yeah, we've just been really happy with all the feedback lately. And oh, and on Patreon, yeah. our patrons are suggesting topics for our listener selected episode. Um, for so all the patrons are suggesting topics, and then we'll narrow it down to the top five. And then um, our five dollar and up listeners will get to s select a topic for that episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, welcome all our new listeners from uh, who who heard about us through Josh Zeps. Yeah, that was a, yeah. Um, that was our biggest boon since yeah, Sam Harris, uh, who was also that's involved. Right. That's it? right. That's right. We 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 are we are eternally grateful to all of the people who who shout us out. Does anything good and happen to us that isn't partly direct? You know, caused by Sam Harris. It's funny. Uh, I feel I feel that way about the podcast for uh, Sam and Paul. So let's talk about measuring pleasure. This was your idea, so yeah, yeah. You t as you told me, I have a, clearly ha had a boner for this topic, but I think it's actually one of the most interesting uh, discussions one can have about methodology. And so, uh, if you will, if if you will permit me, I'm gonna tell sort of the the story of how this this stuff even came to be of interest. So when I was in, in graduate school, this woman named Linda Bardashuk, who wrote this paper on the measurement of pleasure and pain that we'll link to, um, gave a in-class demonstration for the intro psych course that I was TAing for. So uh, my very first, I was my very first TA ship. Um, and she gave out a little strip of of paper, these little chemical uh, strips that contain a chemical that um, distinguishes between people who are very, very sensitive to taste and people who are not. So in a nutshell, there is actual biological difference across the population in how strongly you taste flavors. And we know now that it's pretty much the density of taste buds on your tongue. Right? We can measure this objectively. Um, and there is some research on the genetics of it. So what that means is that this chemical, it was discovered like way back in the 40s, some people taste it as really, really, really bitter. And some people don't taste it at all. And what Bartoshek did uh, was she discovered that there are some people who are kind of in the middle. So like roughly there's three, there's three groups of people. She gave it out to like, there were like 200 students in the room. Uh, um, you can see sort of like 25%, 40%, and then whatever the remaining 25, whatever that is, 35%, um, react very differently to this. So some of the people spit it out immediately because it tastes so bitter. Some of the people report that, yeah, it tastes kind of bitter. And some people, just, they just think they got duds. Right, they like they taste paper. That's it, like buying and fake acid. Exactly right. Like, and then an hour later, you're like, shit. <laughs> no, <laughs> you you try to convince yourself, like, oh wait, I feel something. Here, mm -hmm. let me just uh, take another hit of like. This I, I remember the first few times I smoked weed, I did it so poorly, and I was like, am I high? Am I high? Yeah. Finally, someone's like, dude, you'll know. <laughs> <Just> chill. <laughs> you'll fucking know. And that's especially <laughs> true with LSD. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, so this research on taste sensitivity, one of the, the reasons that she did this research, I mean, she studies uh, perception, um, was to make this methodological point that is, look, here's how we would normally measure something like how bitter or how sweet or how, how intense is a flavor. So I would ask you, I would give you something, Tamler, like some pudding, and I'd say, on a scale of zero to 10, how sweet is this pudding? So let's say you say uh, it's a nine out of 10. It's pretty, pretty damn sweet. You give it to me. I say, oh, it's a nine out of 10, pretty damn sweet. Whole, a whole bunch of psychology rests on the assumption that that comparison is meaningful that that is actually capturing uh, a similar phenomenology in you and me. Right. And so... Like um, similar so subjective experience. Sub- similar subjective subjective experience, right? So anybody who even starts thinking about how, how psychologists do their work will realize, well, how do you study subjective things objectively? And by and large, one of the ways that we do it is we use scales and then we can do math on it. And it seems like we're get actually capturing something. So you could say, look, on average, this food is a nine out of 10 on the sweetness scale. But given this finding that there's actually a difference in taste sensitivity, here's what you might actually get. So I actually am in the category of people who has a high density of taste buds. So I taste very, very bitter paper. So I, I and I have lots of taste buds on my tongue. Um, if you... If I taste something and I say, this is really bitter, it's a 9 out of 10 bitter uh, on, on the scale of bitterness, and you suppose that you have like really, really few taste buds, um, uh, but you also taste it as bitter. And in fact, for you, it's also one of the most bitter things you've tasted, right? It's just that you don't, it's just that you don't have that the range intensity of, of the bitterness is much lower for me. Exactly, right? So... So you say nine out of 10, right? Given that we know this physiological difference in, in how taste works, we can realize right away that there's a problem going on. So this is a, this is a problem that was noticed, like we're talking like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where the people who were studying perception, psychophysics, ran into this problem by trying to study stimuli. So, so you want to know how loud is a sound Right? You ask people how loud something is. You can, you can use these scales within subjects. So I could give you a bunch of things and make you rate them on the sweetness. And you would actually, it would be meaningful to say this one's a nine, this one's a seven for you. But the minute that you start cross comparisons, you, you lose the validity of this. That is, you no longer know whether it's mapping on a subjective experience. So, uh, Back then in the 50s and 60s, researchers tried to find ways around this. So how do we get an objective measure of this? So um, there were a variety of methods that people uh, worked hard on to try to like figure out uh, how, how to measure things objectively. So one of the ways that you, that you could try to do it was um, do something like a threshold test where you say, okay, when do you start hearing a sound? Like you've probably taken those tests when you were in, in school where they put headphones on you and you have to raise your hand when you hear a sound. So you, uh, you can see at what, at what loudness does somebody have to, to uh, does the sound have to be for somebody to hear it? And then maybe you can tell objectively, right, whether it takes like what decibel level it takes before one person hears it, before another person hears it. Um, 
that it gets a little tricky though. There are all kinds of reasons why that that's messy. People do false positives. You'll raise your hand when you actually didn't hear a sound, so it's hard to measure it. Well, here's here was the insight that people realized that I think is just one of the most clever methodological insights. Um, one of the ways that you can get around this, and this is in this really short three-page paper by Linda Bartoshuk, she describes just this method. Here's, here's how the psychophysics researchers uh, realized they could measure something objectively, even with this problematic uh, scaling problem. So uh, you taste something sweet, um, and I ask you, okay, this sweet thing, how bright would a light have to be to be the equivalent intensity of sweetness? Um, or how loud would a sound have to be? And so as long as those modalities like vision and hearing and taste are separate, like they're not correlated, they're not caused by the same mechanism, then you you have sort of a meaningful measure of how the subjective sense of, of intensity um, can can vary even when the rating is the so same. So just to be clear, because they yeah. what they did was after getting them to say how bitter it was and finding that they they put the same rating on a scale of one to ten, they said, like, compare it to how loud this sound is. Yeah. And then they the said, people with high taste sensitivity did a much loud, louder sound than the people with low taste sensitivity. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you get right. And you get a reliable that it turns out to be a reliable uh, it's capturing the difference that we know is there from physiology like that scale is actually capturing it. So if you're what they call a super taster, somebody with really, really lots of taste buds, um, then you report that that bitterness that you're experiencing is like, you know, whatever, a 90 decibel sound. But if you're a, a kind of in the middle of the road, you say it's like it's, it's as intense as a 60 decibel sound. So, so this cross-modality comparison is a reliable way to capture a difference. Um, that you would never see if all you did was ask people on a scale of zero to ten, or often zero to a hundred. You know yeah. how how bitter was this, even compared to the most bitter thing you ever tasted. Um, and what you can do is you can even get take a further shortcut, and you can ask people on a scale of zero to one hundred how intense was this bitterness compared to the intensity of any sensory experience, like loudness, bright, like imagine the brightest light or whatever. And there you can still get something reliable. So that's all like good and well like that's a problem that was faced by people researching uh, uh perception and it was taken care of and we know that that's an issue like the people in that field know that that's the way that you have to measure these subjective sensory experiences but now like go to some of the subjective experiences that people in my field like social psychology want want to measure yeah and so this paper uh on pleasure and pain um is an interesting case of this. So you want to know how painful a stimuli is. So I shock you, like I have a shock machine, I shock you. Um, uh, we, we actually have a shock machine in my lab and we've used it before. So you can measure objectively like the, you know, how many volts you're delivering. But, um, but, and then- You do like an underground you know. Milgram? Yeah, we basically, we, we let people, we let people shock themselves. So, so, you know, they had full control over the mechanism. Um, Experiment requires that you continue. <laughs> that's right. In a German accent. Um, it turns out that a German accent makes people much more. Um, the, so, 
They just skip right to 400 votes. <laughs> like crisp, crisper. Um, y- you can know how much shock you're delivering, but how the hell do you know how much pain someone's experiencing? Yeah. Right? Like, clearly there are differences in pain, like pain threshold. Is it, j- is it that people are experiencing the same pain and complaining less? Like, that's actually a bit, it's always really bugged me. It should bug you if you're, tr- if you're even purporting to measure something. I'll give you something from my own field. Like, when I show people a gross picture... Uh, as I do in the studies that I do on disgust. Um, how do I know that they're feeling just as much disgust as somebody else? And then half of them are just telling me that it's not that disgusting. Um, but they are, their subjective experience is just as, as intense, right? So you could, you know, you could try your best to, to use objective measures, but the pro the problem of knowing someone's subjective experience is, is still there. So, one of the most interesting things in this paper is uh, this Bartoshuk reports a study where they ask people to do uh, to report their pain. And what they found was that women who have experienced childbirth, um, when they're asked to report the most pain imaginable and they report childbirth as the most pain imaginable, and then you ask them to compare it to the brightness of a light, essentially like... The pain that they report as the worst pain ever is uh, brighter than the brightest light they've ever seen. But people who have not experienced childbirth, uh, they report that it's the worst pain they've ever experienced. Like, say you broke your ankle. That's like whatever, this many lumens or however you measure the brightness of a light bulb. And so uh, what they found was that um, essentially when you you convert using this cross-modality method... What you find is on like a 10-point scale of pain that that you, that doctors use all the time, right? You come into the office and they say like, okay, how much pain are you experiencing on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being the worst pain you've ever experienced, that those numbers, you can't compare across people. But basically, women who have experienced ch- childbirth, the same pain that they report as a 4 out of 10 is what most other people would report as a 6 out of 10. And this actually causes problems because if you're using that scale to, to give out pain meds, you're essentially giving some people pain meds. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is Tamler. I wish you guys could have seen Tamler's face. <laughs> right? Like, no, no, no. Like, is, like yeah. when I when I get that question, I interpret it as what is the number that I need to hear in order to give you Vicodin. That's it's it's, like, uh, it's the uh, exactly how I feel, and it's like okay, I can't say ten, right? Because they're gonna know right, exactly. like because clearly this isn't a ten. So what? Like what is it? Is it a it six? Can't be Can too obvious. <laughs> like that you're just trying to get the Vicodin, uh, but it the, can't be the, too low that he gives you that like quadruple Advil bullshit. Oh yeah, I'm like all that's saving me is like <laughs> how, how many like how big the bottle has to be, like and they're like horse pills, like quadruple. I'm like you mean I could just take four regular size ibuprofen yeah yeah it's (laughs) that's fucked up and you yeah so it's like that's the calculation but no they really use it like they ask it all the time and i you know it's like well i i don't and this is what's what's frustrating i think we've all felt that like what does that even mean right uh so you can anchor it with like okay compared to the worst pain you've ever experienced so you're making people do some sort of calculation where they're like you know parsing their pain into 10 like 10 units and doing the calculation. But because we get numbers out of it, it feels objective. Right. Right. So, so it's like, uh, uh, this is unfortunately science ish, 
right? It's like uh, what what Feynman called cargo cult science. Like you, you're going through the motions of science and you're doing the statistics, but you're doing this like garbage in, garbage out. You're doing statistics on numbers that are actually not meaningful at all. Like they're not right. actually capturing what you think they're capturing. Um, so this this has started to really bug me because all of uh, like it's not that we're always only judging subjective experiences in our studies. Like sometimes you're measuring other things like your moral judgment, you know, how many people do you have to kill to save, you know, right. how many people do you have to save? Like that's not a, subject, a subjective experience, but for that slice, which is a pretty big slice of the field where you're trying to measure something objective, like how anxious are you? Right. When I show or how, you know, how much anger did you experience after this manipulation? Are childless people happier than people with children? Right. Uh, I haven't yeah. even gotten to the subjective well-being stuff yeah. because there it really starts to have real implications, not just can yeah. I get it published in, in this pay-to-publish journal. Yeah. Um, but you have like real, real policy implications when you're using numbers that are essentially meaningless. And so yeah. I'll link to another article that that is talking about sort of how public policy uses subjective well-being, right? But pretty much like... If what you want to measure is is some hedonic state, um, doing it across people doesn't make any sense. So right. we have it no makes sense reliable you, way of doing that. Right. It makes sense to do it within subjects, right? Like if I give you a little palm pie, you know, palm, palm, I just dated myself. If I give you a little app that every once in a while asks you, like, how much pleasure are you experiencing right now? Like when you're watching Fargo. Um, you're at an eight out of ten, and when you are uh, like grading papers, you're a two. That's meaningful, right? Like the difference between those two, and then we can rank all of the experiences using your own scale. But now, if you try to tell, if I say I'm experiencing an eight out of ten, and I compare it to your eight out of ten, we really have no no fucking clue. And right. who's experiencing more pleasure? Or exactly, no yeah. amount of data, right? Some psychologists say. Um, as Dan Gilbert, for instance, is quoted yeah. in this Bartoshek paper saying, well, as long as you measure enough people, then it's okay. No, it's not. It's not. It does. That does not get around this problem. It gets around other problems. It does not get around this problem. Bully. It's not. It's, 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 and I, I think the implications, if you are the sort of philosopher who thinks that increasing well-being is the, the sort of supreme moral command or increasing hedonic pleasure is, um, or reducing pain, then um, I think it's a real stumbling block unless you can measure these things objectively. Like, I mean, yeah, right? Like, so if you're a utilitarian and you think that is what morality it should be aimed at is reducing the amount of pain or increasing the amount of pleasure, if you have no reliable way of measuring that, then... Um, then that's a, just a, like a inescapable practical problem. And, you know, most moral theories, at the very least, take that into account. They that's may not right. think that's it's say, right? the it's, ultimate it's, principle, but any moral yeah. theory is trying to <laughs> uh, minimize suffering if right. possible. Even Kant, even Kant would actually think that it's, it's, yeah. it's a, an important goal uh, <laughs> to, to, like, reduce suffering. Um, and he, we, like, we just... <laughs> why did he what? write? the way he wrote <laughs> unwittingly it was a hoax um it, <laughs> it was a, like a 250 <laughs> year hoax on philo analytic philosophy good job you know by the way what Bravo. i want to do is uh i'm just gonna find my shittiest papers and declare them to be a hoax like you know 10 <laughs> yeah. years later 
I'd be like, see, gotcha. You guys, you guys. <laughs> but now, so here's, so I was thinking about this. So on the one hand, you could just completely throw your hands up if you were a utilitarian and say, all right, well, we might know a true moral theory, but there's no way of implementing it because we have no way of knowing how much pain uh, or pleasure other people feel. Or you could say, we don't have any precise way of measuring how people feel, but, you know, we know that people who are being tortured are experience more pain than people who are being tickled, right? Right. Like, so it's not that we can't make any judgments about that. What we can't, but but it does kind of show that science here isn't as useful as... Well, yeah, so this like, is why... These are why, those things that we know already. Right, well, this is why I wanted to talk about this particular Barshuk paper, because this is actually offering a solution, right? Because... We've we've raised the problem of of measuring this stuff before, but but I I'm more hopeful. Like in the '60s, they got around this problem by changing the way they measured this, right? And that actually turns out to be a really reliable way of doing it. Um, there's a little there's a sentence in this paper where she cites a bunch of people and she says this problem with measurement has been rediscovered multiple times across different fields. And I think that uh, it just has not been properly rediscovered in social psychology and um, maybe maybe the greater... So, so I think there are ways of measuring this. I wonder if anybody's bothered to do this. Because so what here's do you think one, is? Yeah. There's no obvious analog because you can't... There's no obvious analog to the thickness of the taste buds, right? So... You can't look at somebody and know just objectively how intense their feelings of pleasure and suffering are in the way that you can with taste. But that was crucial to figuring out how to do what they were doing, right? Well, so, yeah, but it was just aided by the fact that we knew that there was this biological difference. But the methodology allows you to do something like Okay, like uh, I bring you into the lab and I make you feel some pain. I, I prick your finger. And now I say, um, uh, I give you a bunch of different uh, sounds that vary in decibels. And I say, right, now okay. how much pain, right? So you can actually use a method like this to figure out people's sort of like where they are on that scale. Okay, um, yeah, what, yeah. what is your pain scale like? But I just don't I think anybody's more got... for the subjective well-being kind of. Well, study. so that's the problem. The, the the broader you get, the harder a problem becomes because if yeah. all you want to measure is pain, uh, and here's where it gets me to it. I think an interesting problem, which is uh, well, the other ones were interesting too. But when you have a masochist, so say say a real true masochist who who in some measure enjoys pain, um. You are giving you, you give them a shock, and you realize that their rating of pain is like uh, you're giving them the same amount of shock as you're giving somebody else. But somebody else is reporting this is like a really really intense bright light. Um, maybe they're reporting it as less. Like I, it's unclear what the masochist is experiencing. Is it that they are experiencing a lot of pain, and then there is this more complex judgment that is satisfaction with that pain? Or are they experiencing less pain? 
altogether? And I want somebody to fucking answer that question for me because I don't I, <laughs> I want to know what's going on. Well, and I, right. And yeah. I that it, the question is is that like is there a way to conceive how that question could be answered? So my a friend of mine, Matthew Nock, who's a clinical psychologist at Harvard, um, MacArthur Genius Award winner, Matthew Nock, the Matthew Nock. Uh, he studies people who who are uh, self. He studies self injurious behavior and suicidal behavior, and he's done studies on pain, um, looking at the two populations of so people who aren't uh, self injurious, like cut people who don't cut themselves, or and people who do, like a clinical uh, population of students who do. Um, and he brings them into the lab and he has, it's not a shock machine, it's a little device of his own construction that essentially is a lever with a nail at one end of it um, that is rests on the top of your palm, the top of your hand actually, and you can weight it down with washers. And so the heavier it is, the more pain it's causing. And you have some objective measure of the weight, so you know how much. Um, and so what he does is he asks people to hold it as long as possible, right? Um, it, like until the pain is so uncomfortable that they need to stop. Um, and when you do that with a population of non-clinical, so people who don't cut themselves, um, you know, like at some level, people stop in 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Um, he's had to stop experiments because the people who are self-injurious are actually just letting it sit there for whatever, three minutes, right? Like human subjects told him, you know, you have to stop the experiment at three minutes. So they just sit there and take it the whole time. What he doesn't know, at least the right. last time I talked to him, is are they experiencing more pain? Yeah. Like, is it that they're enjoying the pain or are they just less? That's what I mean. Like, how would you, how would, well, so, is it possible to distinguish between those two questions? So that's why I think if you ask them now, if or you gave them a bunch of sounds, explanations, or yeah. If you gave them a bunch of sounds and if what they did was they rated that feeling of pain as less intense. Uh, then you would see it that way, right? So we could right. answer the question as to whether it, whether the masochists say, not, not that self-injurious people are masochistic, but just for the sake of, of this conversation, we could, we could understand whether they are experiencing the same intensity of pain and just they have some meta-like liking of that. And I think this is actually critical to the discussion of what we should maximize. So is it that my desire for pain gives me this feeling of satisfaction or is it that I'm just experiencing less pain, right? Can you just use hedonics or is it more complicated? Do you have to actually measure the pain that they're in and then their judgment of whether that, like if imagine that a, a true masochist really loves the 10 out of 10 pain, right? Is, is that, does that make, well, this uh, is, hedonic calculations of of utility maximization, like the wrong ones. So then, what consequentialists will do is they'll be preference maximizers. Yeah. So yeah. they will maximize your preferences. So it really doesn't matter how much pain you feel. It's do you prefer this experience to occur or not? And then, you know, you could. I don't know, like, would that would that work as a way? So now you're relying on self-reports about how much or how little they prefer a certain Yeah, uh, so there I state. think that it's actually, uh, there I think it actually, then you have to have a much more complicated theory, right? Because you do want to reserve the right to say, like, the crazy person who wants to be beat up, shh, they're wrong, <laughs> right? 
Uh, no, that's more you, the Kantian. Uh, I don't like. I don't want to say that he's wrong if he wants to get beat up, and I won't say. I don't want to say he's wrong if he wants to get beat up every other Tuesday and then not the rest of the week. I don't like. I have no interest in calling that irrational. Fair, fair enough. It's okay that you don't want to say it, but I think that it really complicates the theory in the sense that you're adding you're adding a layer of judgment that I think makes the elegance go away of like the maximizing because now all of a sudden you have to like measure the judgment of the pain and I think that the appeal of like the hedonic view is that no we can objectively measure how much pain we're causing right right? and Um, that you get past personality differences in terms of like somebody from Minnesota who's just been brought up not to complain (laughs) you know it's like no it's fine you know compared to like like a Jewish person who (laughs) you know whines when the thermostat goes like two degrees Um, that that was (laughs) this beach has too much sand (laughs) you know also I'll give you another example where it's really relevant um in in this the discussed research that we do um and you measure people's individual differences in like how easily disgusted they are. Um, even when you actually measure their actual disgust response, you almost always get a gender. We almost always get a gender difference where women report uh, more disgust than men. Um, and this is true of other emotions, but it's totally unclear whether that means that they're actually are feeling it differently, uh, like more intensely, or whether there is just a social norm that women sort of, you know, a, either a stereotype or a norm that women are allowed to communicate the intensity of their emotions in a different way than men, men or not. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens when you try to look at physiological measures, you might think, well, why don't we just look at their whatever, like their physiological measures? Physi- the physiological measures are actually really sloppy. Like it's actually hard. So when we do look, as, as far as I know, across this literature, you, you find a self-reported difference, but you usually don't find a physiological difference. Like if I hooked uh, men and women up to whatever heart rate, or galvanic skin response, and I show them disgusting images, you, you usually don't find gender differences there. You only find it on self-report. But it's not clear whether it's just because those are just crappy measures, right? Like they're they're really noisy measures. So so we don't really know um, whether it's an actual di- subjective experience difference. Or, or so you know what will solve this problem? <laughs> Neuroscience. You just put them in an fMRI machine, and then you can know for sure exactly what they're feeling and what their the intensity of their subjective experience. It's that's one case where you would think like you would hope that maybe someday we get there but like the the neuroscience of pain alone is actually so messy that who the fuck knows well you would run into the same problem it's like it doesn't hold hope of really shedding any light on this particular problem yeah and this is i actually i'm sure i've said this before but we got an email um asking specifically me why I was such a skeptic about about brain science and what it can contribute. And they're like, look at these cool studies showing that like you can correlate brain states to like cognitive abilities. But like all of that research fundamentally relies on that you can first measure the psychological state. Right. So so you have to if you want to know what areas of the brain are implicated in pain, you have to ask someone, how much pain are you experiencing? Right. And then correlate that with their brain state. 
And so the brain finding itself, it's telling you something interesting about the brain. It's not, you're not learning anything new about the psychology because you have like saying goes for memory or whatever other fucking cognitive thing you're like. So, so that this is just, I don't know why people are so, so excited about the Well, brain. it's that same <laughs> issue that you brought up earlier where it's numbers, it's, it's quantifiable. It's, it has the imprintur of, uh, yeah hard science but and that just makes people think okay it's objective and this is a problem like you know it's funny like in some ways it's a similar problem to the problems in you know the overly precise analytic philosophy of right you it, it has it gives the illusion of objectivity through its sort of you know, right. If you have P's and Q's and like, yeah. you know, like whatever those signs that are ands and ors and inclusive, inclusive and exclusive. But there's yeah. that same question of are you really getting at the thing that you're trying or, or shedding light on the thing that you're trying to shed light on? And, you know, it's an interesting sort of bias. I mean, I guess Molly Crockett way back on episode 20 Man, Even though she is a neuroscientist, she was also very skeptical and, and very alert to you just put neuroscience into a paper and all of a sudden people believe it more. You know, yeah. like whether or not it provides any basis, additional basis for believing it, people just automatically assume that it's more objective, it's more plausible. And I think that's l true for a lot of like these easily quantifiable disciplines yeah and and we preach like like it's the gospel uh in my field these studies looking at right like the world economic uh survey where you ask people how happy they are how like or questions about their life satisfaction and then you compare across countries and you're like no we got a lot we got enough people reporting on this like you know puerto rico is a nine out of ten and whatever you know like uh yeah uh, honduras is a seven like let's you, you, people are making actual policy decisions based on numbers um, that that you know to bring us back to our Tamler and David at the doctor um, <laughs> zero to ten pain scale. Like who the fuck knows why I say a seven out of ten? Well, no, um, I, we know. Well, we know that's the number right? that <laughs> you judge is most likely to get you Vicodin. Completely unavailable to know why Hondurans <laughs> or Puerto Ricans are, are giving different numbers. Um, it would be easy if everybody was doing it for no, Vicodin. And, and, and these studies are all over the place, right? People are happier when they have certain level of income. People yeah. are happier when they have shorter commutes or longer commutes. People are happier if they have children or don't have children, if they're single or in monogamous relationships or polygamous relationships. These these kind of studies and the way they're reported in the in like the popular press, never mind the actual yeah. journals, you know, just overstates it. You know, if you are single and childless, you are you're definitely happier than your married yep. friends with children with at least two children. Yeah, I know. It's like taken as a law that like your happiness goes down. Right. Um, and. And, and like, to, to be clear, like, there are a ton of problems with these comparisons. This is a very specific one that I think is overlooked. But, like, um, I'll link to another article on subject of well-being. There are other problems with scaling issues. Like, if you have experienced something, like, you know, really, really awesome, then the way in which you use the numbers can change right. for you, right? Like, um, you had never had an orgasm before. All of a sudden, you realize that that's your 10, not, like, chocolate cake, 
right? Um, chocolate cake used to be your 10. Now, now it's an orange. So everything shifts. So even within, within you. So people who are living in very impoverished environments who have never, they, they don't know what it's like. It's, you know, I always think the first time I ever rode in first class yeah. sort of ruined me, right? Because now yeah. all of a sudden coach is way more miserable, right? Like, so my own scale has changed. All those problems with, with scaling, but we're using these numbers both to conclude things that are we claim are objective, but also to make real decisions uh, about about how we ought to distribute, for instance, money. We're using, I think, this internal metaphor of like, well, yeah, it's clear that there's physical pain that's worse for some people and and better for others. So let's like bring let's bring the worst up to like you know common misery or whatever. But there are real pro there are real problems with like that that I think is is they're not talked about and it's sloppy like we I think we think we know a lot more about subjective experience than we actually do um, yeah I don't know like these studies have always struck me as dubious be for just the challenge of measuring something as complex as your happiness or a well-being. I think we've talked about it, you know, in the context of, you know, some of those people who give you, um, like, like every 10 minutes you're supposed to say how happy you are or how stressed <laughs> yeah. you yeah, are yeah. or something like that. And then they extrapolate that to, you know, you're anxious or you're happy, you know, based on how often you press that. But, you know, like all of these studies, however they're trying to measure it and get around these, it's not getting at the thing that we kind of care about. And the thing that we care about is so kind of ineffable that it's hard to even describe, never mind measure. Right. And that's why I think like I really, uh, I really dig this work on low level perceptual stuff because yeah. if if the problem exists and even how how intense is this sound or how bitter is this flavor right like if they, they had to go they like this is like you know 30 years of working on methods to try to get a good measure of how bitter something is like imagine then of course yeah. and you know getting something like like life satisfaction is 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 kind of insane and that's why it's no surprise that trivial little events can affect your overall subjective well-being ratings right i mean yeah it's 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 not shouldn't be that surprising you, you're constructing together a whole set of complex judgments on the fly right and those might include does my back kind of hurt right now <laughs> i think we are at a much earlier stage of progress than than the charts and the graphs the hubris yeah. of some of these studies where and, and you know i remember this i think we talked about this back in the antinatalism uh people but, keep wanting us to talk about population ethics by the way it's not it's kind of interesting yeah maybe we should do that that was one of the yeah. patreon suggestions yeah. um do you remember that part of the argument was based on this idea that people are deluded about how happy they are so they think they're happy right. but it turns out objectively <laughs> right. that they're not happy so right this, the hubris of that study that tries to show people that they're deluded about happiness because they think they have an objective measure of how happy they truly are is just, I mean, it's mind boggling. And those yeah. are real studies that, you know, 
get published oh, yeah. in real journals, not paper journals. No, these are like our top. These are, you know, this is TED quality, TED, TED quality material. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, th that's like hands down the weakest part of those arguments. Like uh, if, if that's what you're relying on, then then forget it. Um, uh, I, I maintain that there's something deeply true about antinatalism. It doesn't depend on shitty studies. Um, I, I say, so, so I don't know how, how to fix this, but all I know is that we do need more rigor and, and before we, we start using these findings to make any conclusions, um, let alone getting into the differences between, like, there's a paper, I might link to it. There's a, there's a great paper I found on... Uh, in a journal called Animal Sentience, and it was about sort of the the use of of pleasure and minus pain calculations, and how they don't make any sense at all. Like, I mean, you're assuming that you have like some sort of objective measure of these two things, um, but you're also often assuming that that there is some overall net balance of like uh, orgasms minus agony um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is a meaningful number. And, and it's just like, you know, uh, so the guy is making an argument that we should focus only on pain, that pleasure is morally insignificant, right? Like we, yeah. we want to get everyone to neutral at all. Um, and yeah, so maybe if we and just then anything above that is just gravy, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. I think that's all I had to say about that. All right. So don't, and the next study you read, I mean, I don't know, maybe we can continue this another time. I, I, I still don't think that I, I don't think that means you throw your hand up and you say there's no way we can know how anybody else is feeling at any level of you know fine grainedness. I think it would it would just that maybe the methods of psychology that are currently being used and maybe just the methods of psychology period aren't going to give you a meaningful answer to that question you just go to other ways of of evaluating that well i mean so to to be clear like this is what i think my like my my problem is that we have such better ways of measuring we're just ignoring them right so so there are two questions one is like with a basic sensation can you have a better way of right, measuring? Right. And no, we I, have I'm talking all this, about with yeah. the complex, the uh, more complex, the complex ones. Yeah. 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 Where, <laughs> yeah. You just but I don't. still think it's not that we can't ever, like if, if you tell me to evaluate my friends on who's happier and who isn't, I like, and there was some way to, you know, like rate them on a scale of happiness or, or whatever. Like, I bet I would be better than chance just through interacting with them. But I think, yeah, no, I just agree. Like, I think that what we're doing in those cases when we know somebody, you know, and this gets to kind of the discussion we were having with Valerie. Um, uh, when you know somebody, you're using all kinds of information. Yeah. Right. So if you know somebody, you can say, Hey, Tamla is just unhappy, and somebody might say, "Like, what? What are you talking about? Like, he doesn't seem unhappy." But you, you have a better sense because you know, you know the person well, and you've seen them. And in some ways, it's akin to the right. The one thing that's not under threat by the criticisms that I was just giving is again the within subjects. So you, right. personally, it can be a re a really interesting true finding that uh, you are happier when you get a raise than. 
you are when you get an extra pudding in your lunchbox, whatever, right? Like those within subject comparisons are meaningful. So I think that's what we're doing when we have relationships with other people. We are kind of doing a within subject comparison of you, the other person over time. I get to see them change over time and I learn what they value and what makes them happy. Um, it's just that it's not like a, you know, it, psychology isn't a ruler. We, we can't just pull it out and, and use it to measure everything. Um, like, not to get back to dicks. Bottom line, if you don't beat your meat, you can't have any pudding. <laughs> How, long have you How can you have any pudding if you don't beat your meat? It really is is the <laughs> fundamentally most important conclusion of all utilitarianism is that. <laughs> all right. We will be back next time with another episode of Very Bad Wizard. Just a very bad wizard.